Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hello, and welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. After about a two-week hiatus since I've had a new episode uh, recorded and out, but... uh, Man, I, I was kind of enjoying the <clears throat> the lull there, and now starting this weekend, I've got folks coming in to hunt uh, spec, some early season speckle belly hunters, uh, and then it just kind of seems like every weekend uh, through January, there's just uh, hunting stuff to do or uh, family stuff to do, mostly hunting stuff, honestly, uh, for the next few months. But anyway... Uh, what is cool about that and the being busy is that I get to interact with a whole lot of uh, really cool and interesting folks. So uh, I've already got podcasts uh, lined up with some really neat folks. And we're talking about not just, you know, people in the hunting community, but uh, like really talented musicians. Uh, we've got biologists. We've got uh, some cooks coming up. We've got uh, some kind of raconteur gentlemen hunters all sorts of stuff coming up uh but i thought since we're kind of you know we've gotten to the definitely inside of hunting season throughout the country uh you know and honestly this is kind of when i start thinking it feels like hunting season right like you're starting to get uh some cool mornings some cool evenings uh you know, all the deciduous trees, the, the oak leaves and the maples and the hickories and the elms and all that stuff. Everything's starting to drop, drop its leaves. It's getting kind of crunchy out there when you walk around. Uh, it feels like deer should be running around. Uh, just more activity, right? So we're, we're getting into, into firmly held hunting season territory across the country. Uh, waterfowl stuff is starting to open up last weekend it opened up kind of federally which doesn't mean that every state opens up but uh, it means it's the beginning of waterfowl season we're going to start getting food in our freezers right or our coolers or at the uh, camp fridge and i thought that this might be a really convenient time to talk about something that you know i do a lot of Personally, uh, professionally, I do a lot of it, and it was kind of my foray into the quote-unquote outdoor industry, and and that's cooking, uh, specifically cooking wild food. So, uh, in wild food, I would I would categorize categorize that as so game animals, right? So we're gonna think about small game rabbits, squirrels, ducks, geese, turkeys, whatever, uh, beavers, raccoons, woodchucks. Uh, then we'll then we're gonna have big game, right? So we'll have bears and deer and elk and pronghorn and all that type of stuff. And that's a lot of really top quality protein coming into our uh, our homes, you know, under our purview. And to me, there's lots and lots of reasons to take really good care of that meat. Uh, some of them are ethical, kind of moral. Some of them are just practical. Some of them are uh, out of a culinary mind, right? Like, what's going to make this stuff taste the best? And I think at at the highest level, all of those those thought processes are interacting with one another. So I thought what I'd do is kind of start from the beginning, talk about my approach to uh, what I start doing when that when that animal transfers, you know, makes that switch from... Uh, a living, breathing, sentient being <clears throat> uh, to meet, right? Toward to something that uh, was one thing and now it's it's something else, right? Uh, and so for me, that starts with 
the processing of an animal. So uh, we'll talk about some processing, just like a few basic things you can do to drastically improve the quality uh, of your meat and just make better meals for uh, every time every time you prepare that that animal or you know a piece of that animal. Like just have better meals, better quality stuff. It'll hold up better in the fridge or the freezer. Uh, it will be, it, you know, it won't be uh, gamey. Uh, that's that might not be fair to say. So there's going to be differences in the way that wild proteins taste. It doesn't mean they have to be off-putting, but just as Americans, we're kind of uh, we're kind of conditioned to like things to like protein sources, steak and meat and whatever, that just kind of tastes like corn, right? And when they've got a varied diet, it's, it's when an animal has a varied diet and moves around a lot, it's, it's going to taste kind of more like that animal than if it didn't. So, uh, but there's a difference between something tasting uh, like what it is and what it eats and that whole, you know, kind of sense of terroir, uh, there's that, and then there's uh, funky stuff that we can avoid. So that would be, you know, poop, pee, dirt, hair, uh, glandular stuff. So, you know, tar running your knife through the tarsal gland on a deer and then cutting out the back straps or not paying attention to removing some of those, those intramuscular glands, uh, you know, specifically on animals that can get a little have a little bit of a stronger kind of like musky <clears throat> overture towards it. So that's a big deal. Like on coons, uh, you know, you, you definitely wouldn't want to cook a, a beaver if it still had its castered land or something in there. That would be funky. Uh, but yeah, so we'll talk about that. Then we'll get into just kind of the three basic methods of cooking wild game that I think everyone should be familiar with. Uh, that's braise, sear, and grind. Uh, talk about some of the, the basic ingredients you should have in your house. And if you get a few methods down, you can, you know, it's kind of an infinite amount of meals you can make. Uh, and we'll also talk a little bit about foraging, some of the stuff that I've been foraging, uh, what my plans are uh, as far as making some stuff this fall and winter. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you kind of cook with what you have and sometimes you kind of hunt with what you want to cook in mind, right? So I'm kind of on the verge of doing both of those things right now. So let's start with processing. So let's assume that you've, you've had a good Saturday morning and you've got a deer down. <clears throat> uh, buck, doe, doesn't really matter, but l let's pretend it's a buck, right? So we're going to say as far as perceived meat quality goes, we're going to have a a buck that's in the throes of rutting, big swole up neck. You know, it's got that, it's got that, uh, je ne sais quoi, right? It's got that odiferousness to it. You know, you can tell this thing's got swollen, tarsal glands, and it's been peeing all over itself. Uh, that's kind of potentially most challenging scenario for a whitetail hunter, which you know, the vast majority of people that consider themselves hunters or are participating in hunters, you know, they're whitetail hunters. So that's a, that's a good kind of mean average place to start. So you got a deer down. Mm, let's talk about temperature. Oh, it's the fall somewhere, you know, Eastern deciduous forest. Let's say you got a deer down and it's 50 degrees, not super warm, uh, but not cool enough to not have to worry about supplemental refrigeration. So first thing I'm going to do is take a look at what I've got in my kill kit, right? So my, my best case scenario is to get this animal uh, with its, you know, innards out, internal organs out, save the internal organs that you want to take home or cook with, uh, and do that efficiently. And hopefully you can do that without puncturing uh, the bladder or the intestinal tract, because uh, that's just funky stuff that can spill into the animal. Uh, you want to get it broken down in a way that's going to facilitate uh, heat dispersion, meaning that that animal, 
you know, is it mammalian uh, ambient temperatures, right? So, you, you know, around about 100 degrees. Uh, it's got a fur coat on, you know, and got this insulatory layer of skin. And then depending on how it's been eating and how much it's been running around and different genetic factors, I'm sure, you know, it might have a little bit to a lot of fat on it. So even if it feels kind of outside to you relatively cool uh, or comfortable, you got to think about the fact that we want to really get this meat, best case scenario, want to get this meat down to sub 42 degrees, right? That's refrigerator temperature. So you got a little bit of time to do that. And if it's not super hot, you got a little bit more time. But uh, the big thing here is keeping this meat uh, clean. So that's keeping intestinal matter out of it, you know, paying attention when you're cutting it up so that you're not nicking the bladder and then pee spills all out or spills out all inside the internal cavity. Uh, you know, that you've, if you know, if you've put like just like a clean, perfect, uh, through and through shot on this thing, like right through the boiler maker there, uh, then all the back stuff, the, the funky stuff, the stomach and all that, that should be intact. And you should be able to just with careful knife, knife work, get all that out without causing a problem. So, uh, we want to get this, we want to get this animal broken down and like really make it into meat. Right. And so for me, when you skin the animal, when you eviscerate it and you skin it and you're starting to break it down into these sections, right. You know, you're taking off the shoulders, you're taking off the hind quarters, you're cutting out back straps, you're popping the, uh, popping the joints and getting the ribs out, taking out the tenderloins. That's kind of stops being an animal to me and that, that turns into meat. Uh, and, and it needs to happen, right? Cause it'd be hard. It'd be hard to cut, <laughs> cut something up if you were, if you're still thinking about it, uh, you know, in a, in a more physical or visceral sense, I guess, uh, this, this just seems more familiar. It feels like you're in a butcher shop or, you know, you're in, in your kitchen cutting steaks or whatever. So what I like to do is have a kill kit. Basically what that's going to have in it is several pairs of latex gloves. Uh, that lets me get in there and if something is funky, I can get in there and get it out. Uh, and if I need to change gloves, uh, it also kind of helps protect my hands. I'm not super freaked out about it, but, uh, you know, every other time I'm cutting up an animal, I, I nick my finger or something. So just as far as potential for transference of diseases or whatever, it's, it's never gonna, you're never gonna be sorry that you took a little bit of extra precaution. So I've got several sets of gloves. I usually like to have two knives. Neither one of them are very big, but one is a scalpel type knife and those came into popularity probably in the last decade or so uh the brand i have is Haviland. i think there's a there's a company called outdoor edge and they make a, a line of it but it's just got these replaceable scalpel blades uh man they're fantastic as far as skinning an animal uh and getting in and doing detail work that doesn't involve <clears throat> uh pushing through bone or anything like that man these things stay sharp I can usually do, you know, a, a full deer with just one blade. Uh, what I did learn on this bear that I cleaned some weeks back was that they also make a, Haviland makes a gut hook blade that was really nice. I've started, uh, and I got this from Jesse Griffiths down at the New School of Traditional Cookery. Uh, it's like a small thing, but it makes such a difference. Just being really mindful about, taking that animal, whatever it is, a pig or a deer or a bear and rolling it onto its back fully so that gravity is helping you and it's pulling all of its internal organs and stuff down and then use a gut hook because you can pull up on it and pull that skin and that initial membrane away from all the stuff you definitely don't want to cut. You can kind of pull up on that. Uh, it's a fixed depth, uh, and man, it's just an effective way to open up, uh, open up that abdominal cavity. Uh, so anyway, and you can just switch the blade back real quick and forth, or back and forth real quick. Uh, that worked phenomenally. Uh, and then I like to have a, 
a bit stouter blade, right? So one of these everyday carry knives would totally work. Just you know, your standard kind of buck knife. Uh, what I used the last time I cleaned something, and I've used it several times, is a... Man, how would you describe this knife? Man, the blade on it's probably three inches long, probably about an inch wide or so. It's got a nice wooden handle on it. Uh, it's a Benchmade knife that I got from some buddies of mine in uh, backcountry hunters and anglers. Uh, it was a it was a gift when my dad passed away, and man, it's makes me think of good stuff and a super useful knife. Uh, but I man, I just use that for like popping the joints uh, or cutting through the that cartilage between the ribs uh, but I mean I've been able to use that to just I just go through joints and you know I'm not trying to saw through bone or anything like that that's another way to keep your meat clean and you know keep as lit I mean, when you saw through that bone you're going to be making this meal kind of looks like grit uh, or grits it's just this bone meal that can get on get on meat and it's just one more kind of contaminant uh, that you have to worry about afterwards. So if you work through the joints and just kind of get the tip of a stout blade in there, you can pop pretty much all the joints on an animal. Uh, and then that keeps your scalpel blade sharp longer. Uh, you don't have to worry about this knife being razor sharp all the time uh, because you're, you're kind of intending it to do a, a bit more utilitarian work. Uh, what it also does is it gives you two blades so that you can you can have a deviation or a differentiation in the blades that are potentially interacting with the the funky stuff and the, the blades that aren't. So simply put, uh, you know, when you're skinning that, what, what I would do if it was a deer is I would take that gut hook and I would split up the middle and then go down each uh, leg down to that first joint. Uh, and then I would switch blades. I'd get that uh, scalpel type blade and I would start working that skin back. I would do the rear legs last. Uh, that's because I want to try and keep that knife blade as clean as possible and work around those, uh, work around the areas that don't have that oily glandular substance that comes out of the tarsal glands. And then I get down there to the bottom and I can kind of do that last thing you know, push down on the hide, get it all cleaned off. Uh, and then if I need to, I can definitely take a towel. I like to keep a towel or a rag with me and wipe that blade off and, you know, get it back in some decent condition. You know, maybe before I go and I cut out the vent, uh, maybe I've still got that hanging on or whatever the situation might be. But just having a couple different knives for different purposes and having a towel or a couple of rags to clean your blade off periodically periodically makes a really big difference uh, also this is the simplest thing to do it weighs nothing and it makes a really big difference when you're cleaning those animals it's just a small blue tarp and you can get some that are like six foot by four foot you can roll them up real tight and they take almost no space you can fit it in your backpack or uh you know probably a big cargo pants pocket or something but man that's phenomenal uh as far as when you start processing that animal, uh, as soon as you take that meat off, you know, a lot of times you can keep that meat clean until you have to lay it down or you're trying to figure out what to do with it. Having that tarp to where you can take that meat and put it down over there clean on a surface that doesn't have pine needles and doesn't have hair and doesn't have dirt and whatever as you're working around because it's such a physical job breaking those animals down. Uh, then I like to have... Uh, you, know, you call them game bags. Just In my case, it's just pillowcases. But game bags, those kind of cheesecloth-style ones, or just old mismatched pillowcases, those work great too. I like taking those broke-down pieces, so like you know your quarters, your shoulders, uh, kind of steak cuts, right? So like back straps, tenderloins. Uh, I have a bag that's just grind. Fill them all up differently. Even if you're just going to go straight into a, a cooler that's on the back of a four-wheeler uh, or if you know you got to pack it out like i did on this last animal you got to pack it out in in chunks and it helps keep the meat 
more dry. So I think it's allowing air to circulate and it's also kind of absorbing some of that blood that's leaking off. So you get that tacky dry surface that you want uh, more quickly. It's keeping dirt and debris and insects off of that meat. Uh, and what I've been doing is taking that, going straight to the cooler that maybe I've got in the back of my truck or uh, wherever it is. I've already got ice down on the bottom, and so that would be either bagged ice or like a, a bunch of frozen, you know, soda, uh, like two-liter soda bottles or milk jugs or something like that. Freeze those all solid and just have a solid layer at the bottom. And then you can stack that meat in those game bags or pillowcases. On top of that, uh, whatever blood or moisture does kind of get through uh, the absorption process with the pillowcases, it just kind of drips down to the bottom, right? So you have cool that's working up from the bottom, but you're not introducing all that moisture, which is moisture breeds bacteria, and that can put an off taste to your meat. So just those kind of basic things. All I'm really saying is, clean it quickly or <laughs> yeah clean it quickly uh keep it clean and get it cold as soon as possible and you want it cold and dry so once you've got that you got the meat back home you're deciding what you're going to do with it i when you're putting it in up in the freezer you kind of have to have some idea what you're going to do with this i used to make the mistake of like freezing a whole quarter and Man, it just doesn't work. Uh, one, it takes a long time for that to defrost. Uh, kind of takes out a lot of space up. It makes a mess. And then you just have like an unmanageable amount of meat. So what I like to do is take out all my specialty cuts. That's going to be like shanks I want for asabuco. That's going to be belly meat to make bacon. That's going to be ribs, tenderloins, back straps, uh, neck roast. Uh, if I want to like save some, if I want to break down a rear quarter and make some hams, uh, or some flank steaks or anything like that, I'm going to pop all that stuff out first. All right. Decide that nah, I, I want about this much uh, of these meals from this animal, or this is what this animal can produce. And then everything else I'm pretty much going to turn into grind. Uh, the, the reason I do that is twofold. One, it's just practically for my family, uh, you know, just like everybody else, busy family, little kids, you know, need to be able to make something quickly uh, when you're, you know, when it's February and it's dark at 445 and you're getting back from kindergarten with your kids and it's already kind of gloomy and uh, what am I going to make, blah, blah, blah. So lots of grind. Uh, what I do like to do with that ground, though, is not – so th this will make your processing more uh, go more quickly and it'll also give you a, a better end product. What I like to do is vacuum seal my meat when I'm breaking it down from a whole animal or from those primals that I've brought home in the cooler. I'll vacuum seal everything. I'll put it down in these manageable portions, and then I'll do these bags, uh, vacuum seal bags, you know, between three and five pounds, depending on the size of the bag. And it's just all my chunked up meat. Uh, that'll still have silver skin on it. I'll try not to have tendon in there, but I'm fine with it having silver skin on it. Uh, if it was a uh, you know, bear too, but like, you know, if it was a bear or a deer especially, I'm going to have it trimmed up, have that fat off of there, especially with a deer, man. Like you don't want any any deer fat really uh, in your grind. It's just kind of waxy, tallowy. It, it, just doesn't uh doesn't translate to a great eating experience uh but yeah i'm just gonna kind of get these make sure they're clean there's no hair on it rinse everything off pat it dry pack those bags full and then i'll do periodic grinds throughout the year so you know a grind is maybe 20 pounds of meat designed to last the family for you know six weeks eight weeks what I'll do is I'll grind it all up. If I'm going to do a mix of meat, like just the other day I was doing 50% uh, wild pig, 50% uh, whitetail, just running it all through and then kind of mixing it and running it back through again. And that's just our everyday, like that's our version of 
you know, hamburger meat, <laughs> as they said growing up. Uh, and I'll just pack those in one. I'll put them in quart freezer bags, weigh them out on a scale, one pound thereabouts, and then press as much air as I can get out, smash them flat, and then stack those up in the freezer. And so then I've got something that uh, doesn't take a lot of space up. It can go from frozen to not frozen really quickly. So, I mean, that's just like real life. You come in, you grab a pack out, you stick it under some water uh, in the sink for five minutes. And because it's not four inches thick, you know, you're, you're dealing with something that's three quarters of an inch thick. It defrosts really quickly. You can throw it in a pan. You can make tacos. You can make just any kind of middle American you know, uh, dinner time favorite, right? So hamburger helper, uh, spaghetti, you know, like American shredded lettuce and cheddar cheese tacos, uh, make meatballs, anything, right? The big part of it is making it convenient for you. Uh, I also find that, you know, if you did all your ground at once, and then you're getting to like a year later and you're getting that stuff that's been sitting up there. The, the whole top surface of that grind, vacuum sealed or not, right, has, it's taken the brunt of the freezing, right? So that's where you get those like kind of discolored edges. It can kind of absorb some of the smells from a freezer. Uh, I feel like there's less of that when you're taking big chunks and then you're running a grind. And then you're only keeping those those packs that you ground for, you know, a matter of weeks as opposed to a year or longer. So that right there will be a big deal. Uh, also, when you have that grind, uh, and I would kind of plan this around when you're going to do a ground, do like a big pile of ground meat. Because uh, what you can do is take part of that, pack it in those packs, just like I talked about, and stick that in the freezer. And then maybe you take five pounds of that or 10 pounds of that. And uh, you do some sort of a fresh style sausage. So I mean, once you've got the meat ground, literally, if you can make a meatloaf, you can make really good fresh sausage, right? So, I mean, we can get into kind of weird stuff or being inventive, but, I mean, cheddar jalapeno, right? Uh, just like a basic uh, sweet Italian or a spicy Italian or a bratwurst is a very simple sausage uh, to make. Stuff that is like more of an emulsified sausage, like a hot dog, uh they can get a little bit a little bit more particular like you, you really got to try and control your temps uh you're putting metal bowls and ice water and stuff but so I if you haven't done this before I would stick with the fresh stuff uh any kind of summer sausage uh, that would I would kind of put that in the same sort of a deal you're dealing with a, a coarse grind just something that's easily achievable by anybody who's just got the most basic meat grinder you you can find like even one of those old fashioned ones that you know you got at an antique store would work for this uh just a basic grind and then the ability ability to add a little bit of moisture and that can be water or uh, wine or beer or cream depending on what you're making and then your spices or whatever accoutrement you're you're putting in there so right like just a bunch of minced up jalapeno and uh, cheddar cheese. That would make a really awesome sausage. You could even get like this stuff called high temp cheese. And it's, I don't, I'm not telling you to get it. I'm not telling you not to get it. It's just, I don't know what they do to it to make it as impervious to heat as it seems to be. So you can do a relatively low smoking on that. Uh, like if you were doing like a summer sausage with this high temp cheese in it. And the cheese won't melt and run throughout the, the meat, which is kind of a problem with regular cheese. But yeah, I don't know how they I don't know how they manage to accomplish that. So use that at your own risk. Uh, but a bratwurst is like, you know, white pepper and cream and salt and pretty easy to do. Uh, I'm trying to think what else. Like Italian sausages. I mean you a lot of these you can get pre-made mixes. It's also very easy to just mix something up and what you do is you just take a little pieces of it patty it out fry it in a pan right it doesn't have to be packed you're trying to figure out what it tastes like try it and say man i wish uh this sausage 
had a little more cumin or, you know, I wish this sausage it needs to be a little bit saltier. I wish I had a little kick and put some crushed red pepper in it. That's about the easiest thing you can do. Mix it up. Mix it by hand. Uh, you can put it in a big mixer if you want, but, like, if all you got is a bowl in your hand and mix your sausage and your meat up, you're just kind of trying to incorporate it all until – and you'll you'll see it. It's, it's hard to describe, but, like, you'll mix this up, and when you are pulling your hand through it, it's going to look like the meat's uh, – as it's stretching out, it's getting to these little hair-like tendrils. And that's when you know you've got something that's the fat and the meat uh, and the emulsifiers and the, the moisture and the spices and everything is – been fully incorporated together and then uh, if man if you just want to do the exact same thing you did with the ground meat you can do that with this then you got a fresh sausage so that works great if you want to make a breakfast sausage like a heavy sage type sausage uh, take that and pack it in those quart ziploc bags again and freeze it that way you know maybe you do five pounds of that fresh country sage sausage or maybe you do that with italian sausage and just keep it loose for making lasagna or, uh, or just something that's easy you know a little bit of spaghetti some spaghetti with some spicy italian sausage or something uh if you do that with you know the half of a pint dough that you shoot this year uh your life is going to be exponentially better than it would be if you didn't do that uh, if you want it to be even better, if you want to have even more delicious meals, if you want to have some variance in what you're eating, uh, I would encourage you to learn two other methods. And you're going to—it's uh, the processing is going to be similar, right? So this is when you're going to get whole cuts, uh, stuff to make steaks, ribs, you know, tenderloins, roast, that kind of stuff. Uh, and we're going to divide that into two. Two methods. One is searing and one is braising. So basically by searing, I'm talking about cook this quickly uh, and at a high heat. So either, you know, searing, a, getting a, a nice crust on a steak in a cast iron pan or you're uh, kind of trying to accomplish the same thing outside on a grill. What I'm talking about is taking meat that is dry so that it doesn't steam, so it sears dry uh, and seasoned. And then you're going to cook it with a little bit of fat for viscosity uh, at, a, at a quick pace and at a high temperature. So, you know, smoking hot pan, take uh, your inch and a half thick uh, backstrap, you know, filet type uh tenderloin situations right and you've got that padded dry you've got it seasoned well with coarse salt and or some flaky salt and some coarse black pepper and then you've got a neutral oil down there in the pan and then you're going to sear that one side and then sear the other side and then you're going to work the edges too and then you can take that and pop it in the oven you know for two and a half minutes just to let the middle of it warm through until you've got a perfect medium rare pull it out magnificent right uh, that works, uh, with, with stuff like beef, right? That works with bison. That works with any of the, uh, cervids. So like a moose or an elk or a sitka deer or sika deer, sorry, coos deer, whitetail, mule deer, any of that stuff that works really well. Uh, that's also probably the best way to cook uh, the breast from a good tasting duck, you know, a dabbling duck. So like a fat mallard or a speckle belly goose or something, just sear that joker off, let it rest, delays a pan with some spirit or wine or stock or even a little bit of water or milk or something. Uh, just have a little pan sauce there. Man, that's like some of the best eating you can get. Uh, so we've covered kind of grinding and some of the stuff you can do with that. We talked about searing. Searing is actually oftentimes going to be the first step when you're doing uh, a braise. And so when I'm talking about a braise, basically what I mean is uh, you're going to take a piece of meat. It's going to be partially submerged in a liquid, and then it's going to be cooked at a relatively low temperature for a relatively long time. Uh, that's that slow and low kind of idea. Uh, 
and you're going to, that's a, that's a method for taking a inherently tough cut of meat. And that meat's going to be tough because of fibrotic tissue, you know, tendons, silver skin, viscera, all that, uh, not viscera, viscera is internal organs. Uh, you know, just like film and silver skin and all that stuff. Uh, that is a detriment when you're trying to cook something very quickly because it just immediately tightens up and shrinks up and becomes tough and hard to cut and hard to chew and makes for a, a poor quality steak. But when given a long time and given uh, the ability to slowly reach uh, the temperature of you know around 180 degrees and then be held there or above for a long enough time for all of that uh, fibrotic you know cartilage based thick uh, material to break down right and then it becomes uh, gelatinous this is the stuff that makes aspic this is the stuff that makes uh, a gravy or a pan sauce sumptuous and kind of have that slippery mouthfeel uh, and especially with wild game it gives the suggestion of uh, like the lubricating facets of fat that you might have by eating a uh, like a, a farm-raised uh, pork chop or like a really nice fat-capped ribeye uh, because it's going to have that kind of again that slick mouthfeel uh, it's going to not be, it's going to keep it from being dry. Uh, man, just one of my favorite ways to consume meat of any sort, right? So a very basic way of doing this would be to take a, like the football roast off of a deer uh, or off of a bear, like kind of any big mammal, right? Take that, get it dry, salt and pepper it, sear it in a cast iron pan, and then take that and transfer it to a Dutch oven or, uh, heck, I mean, honestly, you can do this with a crock pot, uh, very effectively. But put that in that Dutch oven or that crock pot, right? We're going to have a very low temperature. If you're doing it on the crock pot, maybe we're talking about the low setting. If you're going to do it in a Dutch oven, in an oven for a long period of time, you, you know, you could go anywhere from really almost 175 up to probably 325 350 maybe even uh, depending on what you're doing but sear that football roast off put it in that dutch oven then you're going to put some aromatics in it right so this is a whitetail roast uh, a bear roast either one of those that kind of dark red meat man throw that in there put some stock either homemade or like a beef stock or chicken stock even would work Get some sort of flavorful stock in there. Uh, maybe we want some garlic, some onions, some celery tops with the leaves on it. You know, maybe some carrots. Uh, maybe run out back, uh, in, or in the front yard or wherever. Someone, someone usually close by has a rosemary plant. Grab some rosemary. Whatever. Throw that in that pot. Let it go for a long, long time, and then you'll end up with something that just kind of falls apart. Uh, absorbs that juice and that concentration of stock that has been cooked in the whole time and that goes great on just mashed potatoes you know with green beans uh, that's a fantastic place to start if you wanted to do a uh, I don't know like an open face sandwich or if you wanted to uh, use that kind of as, uh, as a carnitas base right maybe you want to throw that in a pan with some sofrito and some oil and crisp it up a little bit and then do tacos or tortas or uh, nachos hell i don't know any number of things so i would really encourage you to be able to do these kind of three basic things which was sear braise and utilize uh, grind in a couple different ways uh, i'd also be remiss if when i'm talking about braising uh, if i don't touch on the idea of confine so confine sounds really complicated and uh intimidating and French but really this is this is a method that French peasants you know widely used as a way to preserve meat before refrigeration so what we're talking about uh, and this works with 
any number uh, of proteins, uh, animal-based proteins. But traditionally, we're going to be talking about like a duck or a goose. So uh, an old farm duck or a goose, you know, in the French countryside, it's been around for a long time. It's walked around a lot. It can get tough. It can get stringy, all that. Uh, that can be very analogous towards the way that some wild meat can come because you know, we're talking about an animal that's living and breathing and moving and flying and swimming and running and jumping and whatever, right? So uh, it's a method that transfers to wild game really effectively. But so traditionally, we're going to be talking about the legs and the thighs. Those would be uh, separated from the rest of the goose or the duck, right? You've got the plucked uh, leg and thigh portion. Uh, that is going to be salted and seasoned uh, and then kind of put in a cool place. So modern day would be you'd salt it and season it well, and then you'd put it in the refrigerator for a day or two. Really let that uh, uh, that seasoning and, and the salt through osmosis move deep down into the, uh, the tissue of the bird. Then you're going to rinse it off, pat it dry, and then you're going to submerge it in a vat of fat, uh, rendered fat or lard. So traditionally this would be like rendered duck or goose fat and then take uh, those legs and thighs from that same waterfowl and submerge it completely in that liquefied fat, uh, cook it at a very low temperature. You know, I always kind of work with 175 to 190, uh, just in a traditional oven with a Dutch oven. Uh, make sure that that meat is fully submerged in that liquid fat. It's got a, you know, heavy lid on top and then just let it cook for a long time, uh, at that very low temperature. I've done this with, uh, pork shoulders and pork butts. Uh, man, it's good. It, you'll end up and look, this might take, I've cooked a pork shoulder for probably 15 hours, right? Uh, you, you also have kind of have a lot of room. Like once it gets to where you want it, beca because you're not ramping up the temperature, it doesn't really, it like gets to fall apart and then it just kind of stays there for a long time. So uh, I like to start it during the day and then let it stay in the oven all night while I'm sleeping and then wake up and the house smells amazing and you check it and it's fall apart and then you can just turn it off and let it, settle itself down very slowly. Uh, as a preservation method, what would then happen is they would take that and they would allow it to cool, like maybe put it down in the root cellar or something. As it cooled uh, and that fat cooled down and solidified, as long as the, f the fat layer was above the meat, so in other words, the meat was fully submerged underneath that fat when it cooled, it created an anaerobic environment. So it was impervious, like oxygen wasn't getting in there. It wasn't allowing bacteria to grow, uh, or at least it was a growing uh, very small amounts of bacteria at a very slow controlled rate. Uh, so there would be something kind of described as a ripening uh, where they would, you know, they might keep it like this for six months or something. And it would definitely have more of an essence to it, let's say at the end of that six months than it did when it was fresh. But this was a way that they could they could save that meat throughout that time period, right? And then they'd go in there, they'd break the seal. Maybe they'd take out a couple of thigh leg portions. Uh, make sure that maybe they brought the whole thing up to temperature enough to where it kind of started to liquefy and they could make sure that what they were, the rest of the meat they were saving was going to stay underneath that uh, that level of safety there. And then you take those goose legs, you'd crisp them up in a pan. They're already cooked, right? So you just crisp them up in a pan. Uh, they're crisping up in their own fat. The skin's getting, it's already been sitting there being seasoned and just becoming more intense and more deeply and complexly flavored while it was sitting there sealed off. Now you're crisping up that skin, uh, which is the best part of eating a bird. And you're also creating this, this lubricated surface, right? So you crisp up those legs, you set them aside, let them kind of cool slowly, throw some sliced up potatoes uh, to cook in that fat, right? Man, you're talking about a meal fit for a, for royalty. So 
that's something that, I mean, you could do that in a crock pot too, right? Like you could just put a bunch of rendered lard in a crock pot and put your meat that you had seasoned and done just that basic kind of half-ass cure on and stick that in the crock pot uh, and have this really wonderful, high-quality, uh, I mean, I'm talking like $100 plate stuff, right? So those three basic methods, I mean, we're talking about using a cast iron pan, a grinder, uh, and a Dutch oven or a crock pot. And you can do any and all of this stuff. Uh, I guess just for the last little bit here, let's talk about some stuff that you should keep on hand so that you can make a million different meals out of this. Uh, you know, most of the cooking I do is going to be I'm cooking my protein and then you know, probably more often than I should, I'm basing that or pairing that with some sort of carbohydrate, right? So you're talking about uh, a pasta or a grain or a legume, something like that. Uh, and then some sort of a, a, a quote unquote fresh vegetable, right? So that might be like a salad or man, I just, I always, since I was a kid, I've liked green beans. So I like green beans or broccoli or cauliflower, or whatever it might be. Slaws, slaws is something. Slaws, slaw is something I've gotten way more into. Like the older I've gotten, you know, it used to just be this very, just kind of like Midwestern mayonnaise-based cabbage coleslaw, and if it was fancy, it had some uh, red cabbage in it. It went from that to the church picnics when I was a kid to, uh, you know, jicama apple slaw or uh, celery, celery and apple slaw or uh, shit, what else are we using there? Pears or uh, different kinds of cabbage or bok choy or, you know, onions and apples and celery. And man, there's, there's different stuff you can do, man. And a lot of them are good on barbecue sandwiches. So I would highly encourage you to, to look into slaws. But anyway, uh, if you keep these kind of basic items on hand, you can make dang near anything, right? So, like, keep your staples. Keep some beans. I mean, like, dried beans. Keep a couple different kinds of pasta. You know, you want some cans of uh, crushed tomatoes. I see you make sauces or, you know, tomato paste. That kind of deal. You know, if you're, like, a chili person, you know, keep Rotel or whatever it might be. Keep that stuff uh, on hand. But that's not really a lot, right? Like, want a couple different kind of oils. So... And I kind of stick to neutral oils, so that would be uh, stuff you could probably fry in a lot of times, too. Uh, but, you know, canola or corn or vegetable or clear fry, right? Those are probably all the worst kinds. But you could also do uh, sunflower seed oil. You could do peanut oil. Uh, anyway, having that kind of stuff on hand, having some olive oil on hand, uh, maybe you got a bottle of white vinegar, maybe you got a bottle of apple cider vinegar, a uh, bottle of balsamic. Uh, but then as far as veg, this is this is kind of like the flavor base for everything you're going to make. If you're going to make a fresh ceviche, if you're going to braise something and have this really beautiful like port wine-infused demi-glace on top of roasted root vegetables, or whatever, right? You're going to basically have kind of the same stuff. So... To me, this all really starts with the idea of a mirepoix. That comes from classic French cooking. That's going to be the flavor base for almost the entirety of classic French cooking, savory uh, classic French cooking. Uh, and that's going to be white onion, uh, celery, and carrot, uh, diced up, usually in kind of equal proportions, maybe a little bit heavier on the onion. And, you know, that would be a base for... You know, pair that with, you know, an old barnyard hen, right? And you've got like chicken noodle soup or chicken and rice soup or chicken pot pie. Uh, you could take those same things and pair it with beef and you've got like a hearty beef stew or you've got a beef roast. Uh, and like what we've been talking about as far as methods, uh, I mean, it would just go great with kind of any sort of braising or stewing. Uh, Hell, you could put that stuff in, mix it up with ground meat and stuff it in a casing and make a really, uh, really tasty sausage. 
and even, you know, maybe that's just like my Western influenced mind centers, uh, France as like the home of cooking and lots of arguments be made that it's not. But then I think of the classic American version of Mirepoix, uh, holy American, which is going to be the Holy Trinity, you know, popularized down in Louisiana, New Orleans specifically. And that would be a version of Mirepoix that changed and augmented itself because they're settling a much more humid, hot climate and different uh, veg grew better there, right? So instead of it being the carrot, onion, and celery, it became uh, onion, bell pepper, and celery. Yeah, I couldn't remember for a second. Uh, that's the Holy Trinity, right? So that's going to be the base of all your New Orleans-style food, your uh, Louisiana-style food, your Cajun and Creole, right? So you got jambalaya uh, and andouille and gumbo and uh, lots of bisques and uh, cubions and whatever else, right? Uh, but that's the base. That's Holy Trinity. Then they say you got to add the, the Pope, which is garlic, right? So I'd basically include that all together. You get your Holy Trinity and your garlic. And that's going to be a flavor base for a lot, lot, lot of American Southern food. We got the mirepoix, which is going to go kind of towards a more Western European classic version of that. And then we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about sofrito. So sofrito is going to be the Spanish-influenced world's, uh, their version of a mirepoix uh, or the Holy Trinity. Right. So depending on where that place is, you know, if we're talking about Spain or over into Latin America, there's going to be some augmentations to it. But it's kind of similar. Right. So uh, if we talk about Spanish sofrito, this is going to be the flavor base for many of those uh, Spanish foods, uh, soups, stews, sauces that just clear Spanish flavor base. Right. So that's going to be garlic, onion, peppers and tomatoes. Uh if you did the Cuban sofrito, it'd be Spanish onions, garlic, and bell peppers. If you went to the Ecuadorian-style sofrito, which they actually call refrito, it would be Spanish onions, Cubanel peppers, tomatoes, roasted garlic, cilantro, and toasted cumin. So you're taking the same sort of basic uh, flavors and you're augmenting them towards the style of cooking and what's available in the location and what ingredients are there and what will grow and all that stuff. Uh, that said, what I just described, if you kept onion, carrot, celery, bell pepper, garlic, and tomato on hand, you could cook most of this stuff. Uh, specifically, if you, you know, if you got some sort of a, a pepper that had a little bit of spice maybe, uh, and some cilantro, you can pretty much cook all of it. Uh, and you could cook the exact same thing with a French style mirepoix, just say a basic, a basic roast dish with that mirepoix. And if you did it the exact same way, but instead of mirepoix, you use Holy Trinity, you'd get something that tasted different, uh, and like hit the palate in a different way. Uh, you know, and you could call it Cajun pot roast or something if you wanted to. Uh, but you're just doing a variation of that exact same thing you, you first did. And then do a Spanish sofrito with that, right? Maybe chop up the meat or something and, and serve it with some rice instead of potatoes. Uh, do it Cuban style, right? Do it Ecuadorian style. Uh, you could, there's ways they do it in like the Dominican Republic where they involve a tomato juice and vinegars. Any of that stuff either mixed in with ground meat or used as a sauce base for when you're searing something and making a, a, a steak, right? Uh, or medallions or tenderloins or any of these kind of braising techniques. You can mix and match all these different flavors. Uh, incredibly accessible ingredients. I mean, and we're talking about years and years and years worth of different flavor combinations, figuring out what you like, what your family likes. Uh, if you do that stuff, if you just take care of the animal when you're cooking, when you're cleaning it, you try and get it cold quick. If you deal with dry meat, 
and you know how to braise something, you know how to sear something, and you can run a grinder and then brown meat or make a meatloaf, Man, it's like the sky's the limit. It really is as far as cooking. You can get into specialty stuff, right? Uh, you can get into learn how to make crust. You can learn how to make uh, your own basic noodles, right? You can learn how to bake bread. You can do all that stuff and then start combining things, right? You can make kolaches or you can make, uh, what are those things in Nebraska? Uh, runzas. You can make like runzas, right? Or fried pies, Uh you could do dumplings, like Asian-style dumplings or uh, taquitos or in, any number of things, right? If you just know how to do some of this basic stuff, uh, none of it needs to be scary or intimidating. It's the most basic kitchen can do all of this. Like if you have one good, when I say good, I mean like spend $20 on a chef's knife if you're buying it new. If you get it at a garage sale, it might cost you 2 bucks. Get a decent, I like an 8-inch chef's knife, right? Have a few different cutting boards so that you can cut some meat up and then not have to wash a cutting board immediately. You can then do your veg. Uh, have a crock pot. I still have not gotten on the Instapot thing. I still haven't ever really started to mess seriously with a uh, sous vide. I think you can do pretty much all of that stuff with a crock pot. Uh, and man, like, I don't know, a crock pot just is, uh, to me, it's like a super, it, it feels like home, man. It's like Burl Ives snowman singing, you know, like some old brown crock pot with like weird flowers and stains on it, man. That looks, that, that just feels like apple pie and mom making chili and Christmas and all that stuff. So I like a crock pot, but uh, you know, you could do this stuff with a sous vide. Uh, you can do this stuff with an Instapot. Just figure out how to adjust it. I'm sure there's a million recipes online. Uh, man, you know, we didn't even get into uh, starting to brine stuff or uh, do cures on different things, but that's some of what I'm going to work on uh, the next few months myself. So that'll kind of be where I wrap it up. Uh, I've been doing more and more foraging as the years have gone by right now I'm working with acorns that I'm starting to process, uh, pecans that were gathered. I mean, just like the acorns came out of my yard. Uh, the pecans came out of a local park, uh, a whole bunch of persimmons. I think we got like probably 10 pounds of wild native persimmons that, uh, me and Marianne and the kids went out one day after school. Uh, I just picked a whole bunch off a tree and this, that park that I like to go running in, uh, we we're mindful of it. Uh, we left plenty out there for animals to get to, but we picked some that were ripe and some that were starting to be ripe and then just let them kind of finish off here at home. I need to get those processed into, you know, basically like a pulp, like applesauce looking consistency, all the seeds and skin filtered out. And then I'll freeze that, uh, use it for a couple different applications. So, uh, we'll mix it in, do kind of like a spice cake with it. That's really good. You know, kind of banana bread style coffee cake situation. Uh, I'm going to try and make some fruit leather. I'm, I'm on the lookout for someone who's got like a yard, like a yard apple tree or a pear tree or something. Uh, it still has some fruit on it. But, you know, maybe it's not real pretty, but like what I want to do is basically pulp it up, mix it with the persimmons, uh, and then make like fruit roll-ups out of it. Uh, with some of those acorns and those pecans... I'll get all that stuff processed, and I would like to mix that in with some dried, kind of pounded uh, meat, right? So, like, take deer meat or bear meat or whatever and, like, dry it out, like, jerky it, and then break that down. You mix that with fat, uh, and at that at its base is, you know, this kind of old, excuse me, uh, old style North American survival food that, you know, kept people alive for eons and eons called pemmican. Uh, and then you can incorporate nuts into it. You can incorporate some dried fruit into it as well. It's like, uh, there's just supposed to be like all these really cool benefits to it. Like it lasts forever. Uh, nutritionally it's super dense and like easy to process. Uh, just trying something new, man. I'm, you know, I could buy a bunch of beef jerky and protein bars or 
I could try and make this pemmican and see how that works. So uh, I'm going to do that with some of those acorns and those pecans, mix that in there. Uh, I'm also got cures going, so I'm doing some waterfowl breast in like a corning brine that'll, you know, instead of making corned beef, you can make a like corned goose breast, or then if you want to smoke that, you can kind of make it a pastrami style, make some lunch meat. Uh, I'm going to do that with a bear ham too and smoke that and maybe glaze it with some honey and some of that persimmon, uh, that persimmon chutney type stuff. Uh, and do like a, you know, like a honey baked ham type deal. And then while I'm doing these, uh, grinds this week, I've got a, I'm working through a bunch of meat, uh, I'm going to do a, a venison and wild boar bologna, I believe. So I'm going to take those meats and grind them a couple times. I'm going to mix them with a bunch of seasonings and some cure, uh, like pink salt, basically. And then I'm going to pack that all in what's called a beef bung. That's part of the intestinal system. It's how you get like about a four and a half inch loaf, so like bologna style. I'm going to pack that in there. And let that hang in the fridge for a day or two to get everything set, and then I'll smoke it, and should have some really good, like you know, country style bologna here at the house for sandwiches or you know, meat and cheese trays or whatever. So that's kind of my ideas for the next couple months. Doing you know, we'll have like some persimmon cakes for some of these holiday functions. Uh, you know, stuff for charcuterie trays and just making sandwiches and, you know, people hanging out, maybe make some acorn cookies, like some acorn pecan cookies, uh, do some fruit leathers, uh, and then try, try a little bit of pemmican and see what that's all about. Uh, but anyway, so I don't know. I actually took notes and tried to work through that before I did this. So hopefully that wasn't too much of a ramble, but, uh, it seemed like it was a good idea to do that. Uh, get us back into getting podcasts out here on a weekly basis. I've been messaging people back and forth for the last couple of days. And yeah, the next couple of weeks, I've got several podcasts lined up. So we'll get back on track with that. Uh, also, if you uh, enjoy this podcast, I ask this every week, but if you don't mind, uh, tell some folks about it. You can do that a couple of different ways. You can like legit call your friend and say, Hey, there's a really cool podcast. Uh, that might be a little awkward, but maybe work it into a conversation at some point. That would be helpful. Uh, you could also, uh, help by giving us a review or, you know, even writing a few sentences on a review on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast from, because that helps in the algorithm. Other people see it. Uh, People like to see good things. It legitimizes the podcast. It shows that it's got an involved listenership. Um, people are more likely to listen to it or discover it if they uh, don't have a first-person connection to it. So that's ultimately the goal. We want to try and get it out to as many people as possible. Keep these conversations coming. Uh, you can also keep up with me on social media. Right now, it's pretty much just uh, Instagram. I think there's a Facebook page, but I don't have anything to do with it. Uh, but on Instagram and as we move into hunting season, there'll be more and more stuff, uh, kind of in real time happening on that. Lots of cooking, lots of hunting, lots of, uh, podcasts getting recorded. So it's about to be kind of like the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, so follow me on Instagram. That tagline is just black duck revival. You can also check out the website for recipes and articles, uh, and to take a look at hunts or classes that we are uh, putting out there. I added a hunt, and then it got sold out. Uh, the first hunt of the year is sold out, and that will be happening very, very soon. But I do still have a few spots on this New Year's Eve uh, hunt. That's going to start right at the end of, I think, the 31st of December or the 30th of December, something like that. I'll have to double-check. Uh but it'll be showing up on Friday. We'll hunt Saturday and Sunday. And then uh, folks head out Monday morning, get a good night's sleep, wake up, have breakfast, and then head back with your birds and some new cooking skills under your belt and hopefully some really fun hunts. Uh, also, good news this year, Arkansas has raised the limit on speckle belly geese, which is what I'll be focusing on again this year. So if you come do a hunt uh, last year, Oh, it was a mess. The last two years, they had 
dropped our limit down to two birds, uh, but we're back up to three birds. So, uh, man, three speckle belly geese. If you can get your limit uh, on two hunts, that's six good sized birds, man. I I really feel strongly that you can get four meals out of a bird. So, man, it's a uh, that one extra bird per day makes a big difference on the possible return you have as far as really fantastic meals for your family. So information about those hunts is on the website as well. Uh, tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell an acquaintance about the podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.